There were a record number of deaths resulting from police pursuits last year. The police say the number of fatalities went from one in 2009 to 16 in 2010. The police minister says the blame lies with drivers that try to escape. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, police reporter Sheree McQuilkin explores the debate about whether the current system is working or whether pursuits should be banned altogether. A young woman's being zipped alive into a black body bag. She's one of the 15 to 25-year-olds enrolled in a right-track programme in Auckland. Participants are referred mostly by the courts for driving offences. Some have been involved in pursuits. Funeral directors Ros and Martin Williams are called day and night to collect the dead after road crashes in South Auckland's county's Manukau Police District. Today, they have course participants carrying a body bag to a hearse outside. I like them getting in and trying them on for size because we like to say to them at the end of it all, you won't know what it feels like to be in a body bag because you'll be dead. Now's the time. Get in there. Feel what it feels like to be zipped up. The picture of the car with the steering wheel and engine in the driver's seat. That was a fairly low-speed crash. That low-speed, but that one would have been possibly 80k maybe. The cars today are designed to actually come apart rather than be quite rigid as they used to be. Each of the participants has entered the course with a family member, like this woman who's watching with her daughter. I think from the first time you get that phone call and they say it's constable, You don't know whether they're dead, whether they're in hospital. And then they go, oh no, we just picked her up, she's in jail. But it's that first initial phone call for my daughter. When I got the phone call for her, I was one of the lucky ones. And they said, no, she's all right, she's been arrested. The police say despite a slight drop in overall pursuits, they led to 16 deaths last year. Some media say 19 people died. The Automobile Association counts 18. The association puts this down to differing definitions of a pursuit. Of the 18 pursuit-related deaths it counted, four were either pedestrians or drivers not involved in the chases, seven were driving the pursued car, and seven were their passengers. Jamie McElroy was a passenger when he was thrown from Sabaru Impreza onto a semi-rural road in the Rodney district. The 17-year-old died the following day, on April the 10th, 2007. At his beachside home in Oriwa, north of Auckland, Jamie's father Mark McElray and other family members sift through a report from the Independent Police Conduct Authority. It says an officer tried to pull the Subaru over because of the speed and manner in which it went through a roundabout. Mark's partner, Ray Travis, and Jamie's aunt, Kelly Tremaine, say suspected traffic offences weren't worth a life. If they'd have robbed a bank, you know, if you were chasing a murderer or if something major had happened, fair enough, OK. But the fact of the matter was there was actually no real need to pull that car over. If you're pursuing somebody who, who presents a threat to the public, now these boys didn't. Well, the police officer didn't know that they were, they were presenting any threat. As it turns out, and, you know, it was found afterwards that the driver had been drinking, but the police officer had no reason to suspect that at the time. But they weren't violent offenders, they weren't. They were just taking his new car out for a drive.
The Independent Police Conduct Authority found the driver, Troy Anderson, refused to stop in what amounted to two separate pursuits. It also found the police officer breached policy several times. He did carry out a risk assessment required before entering a pursuit, but the family says his lack of judgment shows police trainings inadequate. Senior Constable Paul Willett talks through the potential hazards on a rural road just north of Wellington City. I'm on a road that is a uh, 80k area. It's a dry road with a rural environment. The weather is fine with minimal traffic. Not much traffic ahead of us and maybe none behind us. Senior Constable Willett trains and assesses officers driving, including for the gold certificate, which allows them to participate in pursuits. His role was created in 2004 when safety concerns prompted a new driver training program that included the bronze, silver and gold ratings. During a mock risk assessment, I've decided not to follow a speeding car. This is an 80k zone, so say they were going 120. The road conditions are fine, there don't appear to be any other cars on the road in either direction, but... There's a bend just a few metres up the road, so we can't see what's mm -hmm. coming around the corner towards us. That would be your decision based on the risks that you have seen. Yes, the pursuit wouldn't occur. What would you do then? Radio the comm centre and say that there was a car driving dangerously in that direction. That's right, and if there was anyone else um, further down, they could apprehend that vehicle. So the next officer, if you have said, look, if this vehicle coming down towards you, he may have to make that decision as well. And the hazards are constantly changing. I would not pursue a uh, vehicle through into the main city. It's 1.56. As you see, there's a lot of people around. There's, there's lights everywhere we look, the congestion traffic. Maybe 2 o'clock in the morning and there is no traffic around and there is no pedestrians around, but it, it's still a risky situation to be involved in. Paul Willett says he trains officers to deal with the unknown. I've had pursuits where I would be in initially involved in the pursuit. Risk assessments were fine. The commentary was flowing and everything was provided to comms. And he's driving safely. And then the next minute he's, he's off the road. So you just never know from the point of when you start, what could happen. The Automobile Association says an officer may have just seconds to make a complicated assessment of the risks in front of them. At least six out of 18 pursuits that led to fatalities last year were less than two minutes long. In his office overlooking Wellington's Lambton Quay, the Association's General Manager of Motoring Affairs, Mike Noon, is examining the rules for officers in the Australian state of Queensland. Regions where police are more restricted by rules about when they can pursue drivers are often held up as examples by those opposed to pursuits. But Mike Noon says in Queensland, officers have clearer guidelines. They won't pursue for minor offences such as a, a random vehicle check or a licence check. However, they also won't pursue, for instance, if someone runs from a, an alcohol checkpoint. And one of the arguments there is that driver is mostly, we know, going to be impaired and therefore poses an extreme risk on the road. So there's a very, very large variance in terms of approaches to police pursuits.
Is it wise for police to follow a driver they think is impaired? Well, this is where it all comes to judgment because the, the first thing is you've got an impaired driver, you want that driver off the road because you know that they're impaired, you know they're at a higher risk. And the police have to use their judgment at the moment to work out at what point that pursuit becomes too dangerous and it's better to let the driver flee rather than pull them over. And I don't think the police have an easy task in this at all. They're required by law to pursue. The consequences are really significant if it goes wrong. It does go wrong quite a lot. They're doing their job, what they've been asked to do. The police in Queensland can still chase a vehicle if it's stolen, but that's forbidden in Tasmania. Mike Noon says the association supports current police policy in this country, but it's concerned fatalities connected with pursuits made up 5% of last year's road toll. Roger, CR Victor 3, if there's unjustified risk to any person, you are to abandon pursuit. Acknowledge. Acknowledge, uh, currently going south on Mason's The decision-making doesn't rest entirely with the officer in the patrol car. The acting manager of the police communications centres, Superintendent Kelvin Powell, describes what happens when a driver refuses to pull over and an officer first enters a pursuit. At that stage, the driver is required to immediately notify the communications centre the pursuit controller has to carry out the first of an ongoing series of risk assessments in order to determine whether or not the pursuit should carry on or whether it should be abandoned. The first thing that would happen is that the standard warning will be given by the police dispatcher back to the police unit on the street, which is along the lines of if there is any unjustified risk to yourself or any other person, you are to abandon the pursuit and require them to acknowledge that which is at the very start of the pursuit. He says the type of offence that prompted the pursuit's part of the ongoing risk assessment. Superintendent Powell acknowledges many chases do start and end quickly, but says it wouldn't necessarily help to add further rules banning pursuits based on the offence or age of the fleeing driver. I don't see any evidence that would suggest that either very prescriptive or less prescriptive are having any other benefits in terms of changing driver behaviour, better compliance with directions to stop or reductions in death or injury. What about something like age or speed limit? You wouldn't necessarily put a prescribed limit on the speed at which someone's going before a chase is abandoned or not taken up. To date we've gone down the road of not being prescriptive to that detail. Although speed, as we've indicated, is, is one of the risk factors that's taken into account. 120 kilometres an hour in a 100 kilometre an hour area is one thing. 90 kilometres an hour in a 50 kilometre hour area may have a very different outcome. And so that is part of that ongoing risk assessment already. In 2009, the Independent Police Conduct Authority released a review of 137 pursuit-related crashes ending in serious injury or death. It said most of those chases began over traffic offending and few uncovered evidence of serious crimes. The authority recommended officers be given clearer guidance about when to chase a vehicle and said they shouldn't make that decision based on speculation about why a driver's fled. But the union representing frontline officers says further limiting their ability to act would be a disaster. 
I spoke to the president of the police association, Greg O'Connor, as he waited for a flight at Wellington Airport. He says the intense scrutiny of police actions following events such as fatal pursuits has led to too many restrictions on frontline officers and can make them reluctant to take action. Everything's wrong. We've got to put the emphasis on the fleeing drivers. At the moment, all the emphasis goes on police. And all that does is weaken police response. Something picked up on by any criminal, they see police hamstrung, police becoming almost tentative in their approach for fear of criticism. And these are people, criminals, who have spent their lives exploiting weakness. Greg O'Connor says the number of pursuit-related fatalities has grown because more people are willing to defy police orders and that would only increase if pursuits were banned or further restricted. He rejects suggestions from the Conduct Authority that pursuits are started too easily. I think the IPCA are right out of touch on this. I'd like to see the IPCA get out there and work with some police officers because they're on another planet. We've seen criticisms of police even attempting to pull people over. Saying that, I think there might be a little more common sense starting to come into it now. But I think that the IPCA would have police never virtually pulling anyone over. The decision to flee is made by the driver themselves. People died last year as a result of fleeing drivers. I have absolutely no doubt that that was caused by too many drivers believing that if they planted boot, if they had a go, they would get away, police would pull out, thus perversely we have made the roads less safe. The authority says it consults the police staff involved in its investigations and sees no reason to change the observations in its 2009 review. Greg O'Connor says it's time for a new strategy, one that focuses on discouraging the offending driver. He says, for example, the courts could impose fines of up to $10,000, but penalties of just a few hundred are common. The police minister, Judith Collins, says each year officers make about three and a half million vehicle stops and more than 2,000 drivers flee. And at her office in the Beehive, she's in no doubt about why. Police have told me that 30% of the fleeing drivers are in stolen cars. More than 50% of the fleeing drivers are either disqualified drivers for obviously dangerous or drunk driving previously, or are in other ways unlicensed or prohibited from driving. So we have a very high correlation of people who should not be driving and who are criminals who are fleeing from police. Driving a stolen car or owing fines, is it enough to justify a pursuit that may end in injury or death? Well, who's talking about owing fines? I'm talking about people who are disqualified for drunk driving. I'm talking about people who are disqualified for dangerous driving. And these are people who put everyone else's lives at risk. About one in four pursuits ends in a crash. Judith Collins has asked the police for more information about penalties that might act as deterrents, but says tougher punishments came into effect in late 2009. Someone failing to stop could now lose their vehicle for 28 days or go to jail for three months if they've fled from the police three times or more. The minister rejects the idea many drivers may simply panic and run when faced with a police stop over minor offences. Before Christmas I was out with the County's Manukau Police in South Auckland at night 
they had a fleeing drive incident, they caught up with the car, eventually it was then abandoned, the car was abandoned, and inside the car was a sawn-off shotgun in the front seat with cartridges there, also a stolen car. Now, if anyone wants to tell me that the driver was on his way down to the dairy to get some milk, then frankly I think everyone needs to get their heads read because that's one of the prime examples of someone who is a fleeing driver. The police don't know what's in that front seat of the car until that car happened to be abandoned. Then they saw it. So I think some commentators need to just think their way around this bit more. Of the 137 pursuits examined by the Conduct Authority in its 2009 review, 36% began when a driver was asked to stop over traffic offences not serious enough to end in jail time. 9% of drivers were asked to stop for no specific reason. A professor at the South Carolina University's Criminology Department told Radio New Zealand it's often better to let a driver escape. Professor Jeff Alpert specialised in pursuit policies for 25 years. One thing that we've learned through our research in this country is that there are two myths involved in pursuit management. The first myth is that there's a dead body in every trunk. Most people who flee the police are not serious criminals, but they're young people making very, very bad decisions. The second myth is that if you don't chase, everyone's going to flee. And that, we found out, doesn't occur because research we've done in this country and many departments show that after the change in the policy, it's not that more people flee, but the same people flee. And, and what we've learned here is that some people are going to flee from the police regardless of the policy. Fortunately, most of us stop when we're signaled to stop. The police minister says it's naive to think drivers can be discouraged by the idea they'll be caught later and stolen cars would be too difficult to track down if they weren't pursued. Jamie McElray was in a Subaru driven by its owner. Gathered around a coffee table in Oriwa, his family say he might still be alive if the driver, Troy Anderson, had believed escaping was pointless. Troy had had alcohol, it was over the limit, he had no licence, and the repercussions for that was his brand new car, which was the first day he'd driven it, was going to be confiscated and crushed. For a 17-year-old kid, you either stay and get your car crushed, or you try, because you've got a fast car and you know you've got a good chance of getting away from the police. But it was a very distinctive car, there was just no need for the pursuit to happen. It was two prolonged police pursuits. It was on two different windy roads. He must have had the number plate. He must have been able to find them down the track. So do you think that the message would be better if drivers knew that they'd be caught up with afterwards, whether or not there was a pursuit? Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely, yeah. Yeah. for sure. Yeah. Just yeah. if the cops have got your number plate, yeah, OK, they pull off, OK, but you know if your car's been in a pursuit, they're going to come knocking on your door next day, OK, and um, then you face the repercussions then, not at the time, mm. not at the time when everything's haywire. The Automobile Association spokesperson Mike Noon says not all offending drivers are teenagers or boy racers. Of the seven that died last year, the youngest was 20, the eldest 43. However, he says it's still essential drivers know they'll be caught and the association wants the government to review potentially helpful technology. We know police do follow up, but if police actually had forward-focused video equipment in their vehicles and they pulled up behind a vehicle, took some video, then put their lights on 
If the vehicle flees and they decide it's unsafe, they let the vehicle go. They have all the details of that vehicle and possibly some details of the passenger, maybe even the driver. So there would be a clear expectation in the public that if you do flee and you get away, doesn't mean you've got away, the police will be coming knocking on the door the next day to be asking you, what were you doing last night? The National Manager for Road Policing, Superintendent Paula Rose, says there's been a shift to a greater emphasis on following up drivers who think they've escaped. She says a limited number of video cameras is being trialled in patrol cars, but tracking those that are stolen is still a problem. There is no silver bullet here, and just throwing me some money for some additional resources isn't going to help the problem because actually money and resources aren't the problem. We've got a situation where people are making certain choices and at the moment we don't have a great range of responses that are available that are going to be able to stop that you know, straight away. So for example, vehicle immobilisers, which can stop the vehicle immediately. Now there are some products on the market, we've had a look at a few of those, but many of them just quite frankly are so limited that I'm not prepared to say that's what we'll invest in because we won't get the results that we hope for. She says she's almost lost count of the number of times pursuit practice has been scrutinised, including at least four internal police reviews since 2003, each one leading to policy changes. The police released their most recent review in July last year, and although they expanded their criteria for abandoning a chase, they said major policy changes weren't necessary. There have been at least three pursuit-related deaths in the last three months, but Paula Rose rejects the idea further limitations would increase safety. I'm not prepared to hand the roads back to villains, to killers, because as soon as the general community know that police are not going to pursue you, the first thing that will happen is our drivers will flee, and flee in great numbers. That puts our public and those individuals at risk. Who are the drivers running from police? Are are they killers? Are they serious offenders? Oh, look, some of the people who flee from police have page after page after page of convictions for serious offences across a range of different things, whether it be stolen vehicles through to driving offences, through to dishonesty offences, through to violence offences. Sergeant Tim Lockwood knows about the scrutiny that follows a fatality. In October 2000, he was a constable following a speeding car in the Auckland suburb of Mount Albert. An elderly driver pulled out in front of him, leading to a collision. Eight days later, he received a phone call telling him the man had died. It's devastating, really. I can remember just literally dropping, just standing there like a statue. Just couldn't believe what this inspector had told me. It was probably another five weeks while the police crash investigators did their job and then it was determined that I would be charged with dangerous driving causing death. I was told by my station supervisor and then a couple of days later I got a visit from one of the police officers to deliver me the piece of paper. And from there it goes to court? It takes how long? Just almost a year to the day that we went to court. The trial cleared Tim Lockwood, but he also had to wait for seven and a half years for a report from what was then the Police Complaints Authority.
every 12 months, 6 months. I'd say, you know, has anyone found this file yet? And eventually they found a copy of the final report and sent it to me. You know, that was sort of the last thing. Was, you always had that, I always had that hanging over my head. It was always that sort of thing of, am I going to be personally criticised for what I did on that day? Sergeant Lockwood's a regular speaker at the Right Track programme in Auckland. Where a funeral director is getting even more graphic, demonstrating the use of a bone saw, necessary during a post-mortem. John Finch, who founded Right Track with his wife Helen, says the course is designed not just to shock those attending, but to expose this high-risk group to a variety of viewpoints, from crash victims to emergency workers. He says the standard court process, the loss of a car or a hefty fine, are not likely to be long-term deterrents. The suggestion from my research is that jail is a a dead-end street. You end up collectively getting a lot of criminals in one place. And whether it's rehabilitative or not is dependent, obviously, on the severity of the crime, the nature of the jail the nature of the rehabilitation program following the sentence, the fines as a deterrent. We're not dealing with deterrents on the right track, we're dealing with education. And in my humble opinion, education rather than penalty is the answer. Over the four years right track courses have been running, at least 80% of participants have not re-offended. John Finch says that includes those who fled from the police. The standard thing was I didn't think, I didn't know who I was affecting, I was stupid and I will definitely never ever do it again. Um, I mean those are the sort of classic responses we might have at graduation when these kids stand up in front of the mayor and the district inspector of police and various other hobnobs and they'll say this is what I did. And I can't believe how stupid that was and the bad choice I made. And I had no idea who it would affect. And I won't be doing it again. And I've stopped my mates. And I think one of the keys to the the program is this far-reaching effect where they actually actively start to change their mates' behaviours as well. John Finch says the heroes in movies and video games suffer few consequences after fleeing from the police. He says a course like the Right Track programme would be a valuable addition to the training given to learner drivers. The Head of Road Policing Superintendent Paula Rose says the next 12 months will be a test of several changes, including further training for commanders in communications centres. Jamie McElroy's family also supports the idea of looking at the training available for young drivers. They say something needs to change so others don't die needlessly. From that moment, from the moment that that crash happened, our lives have just been in an awful turmoil. And it's just been not just us, it's the driver's family and the driver, it probably is also the police as well. My son, Jamie was living with us at the time, you know, I still have to go into my son's room and console him, you know, four years down the track, console him. Jamie was, for all intents and purposes, his older brother. It's not worth a death, you know. New Zealand could see the hurt that myself and my family have gone through or myself and Jamie's friends they would certainly not break the law or in both circumstances both the police and and the law breaking use it's just not worth the death 
That insight was presented by Radio New Zealand's police reporter, Shereen McQuilkin. It was produced by Philip Tolley with technical production by Jeremy Veal and William Saunders.